Anyway, we are going to be turning to the word now. Tim's going to be leading us in it. And so it would be good for us to pray for Tim, but also to pray for ourselves that we be good soil for what the Lord has planned with us. So Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Tim. We honor him for who he is, Lord God. We thank you that he is your son. We thank you, Lord God, that you are well pleased with him because he is your son. And we just want to thank you for his faithful journey with you and towards this church, Lord God, how you've anointed him and called him to lead us, Father. And we pray even for the word that you've placed on his heart and what he's been preparing, Lord God. Father, I pray you would anoint it again, fresh anointing upon him, that the Holy Spirit would minister without any boundary or limitation, Lord God, because what you have on your heart for us, Lord God, we want to receive that in its complete and entirety, Lord God, in its fullness. And so, Father, for us as well, we pray the distractions would go. We pray hard-heartedness would go. We pray, Father, we would be open vessels for your spirit to flow, to minister, I pray streams of living water right now for your yes, whole church family. Yes, In Jesus' yes, mighty name. Amen. Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, David. And uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to see you. If you've not met before, I uh, want to just really warmly welcome you here. And uh, I want to um, give a warning to all those who are watching at home and those in the room. Uh, this is kind of an adult message and uh, I'm going to be drawing pictures, but don't worry, it's going to be fine. Um, but just want to, uh, as we go through this Essential Matters series, uh, we have decided we're not going to just skip the bits that are a little bit uh, uncomfortable for us as we read through the letter, um, but actually we're going to go through it. So I just want to give you that warning. But um, there's two words also that I believe are on God's heart. One of those is hope, and the other is healing. Uh, the great thing about God's heart for each and every one of us is wherever we find ourselves in life, at whatever stage of life we're at, uh, in, in Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is both hope for the future, but also healing in the present. Okay. Now, I wonder if you can uh, use your imaginations with me for a moment. Um, I want you to imagine this kind of society, imagine this kind of world. So imagine a world uh, where everything is permissible where anything goes. If you feel like you want to do it, then go ahead and do it. In fact, imagine a world when it's celebrated when you do what you feel like doing. Imagine that. Imagine a world where sex is dirty. It's very popular, but it's dirty. And in fact, uh, everyone seems to be doing it, but it's lost its mystery it's lost its sacredness. Imagine a society where the human body is no longer sacred, but it's actually just something that is used. And, and sex is just an act of plumbing. Uh, and, it, and, the, and the act of sex is just like going to the gym. It's just another leisure pursuit. Imagine a society where that is how sex is viewed. And, and imagine in that society that the, the church has kind of come to think of sex as being unholy or unspiritual. And so all those people outside the church are uh, having lots of sex and it's dirty. But imagine the context where the church thinks, well, actually, it's more spiritual to pray. Can you imagine that? Imagine a society where women are objects used by men, trafficked by men, manipulated, overpowered by men. Can you imagine a society where that is the case? 
and where women and marriage, if you like, marriage has just become something that's about the raising up of children. And marriage has lost its place. Imagine, yes, imagine society where marriage has lost its place, where it's only for having kids and people only stay married for the kids. Imagine in that society, in the church, where people are married, that they've stopped having sex. Now, I know you might find that that's a really hard context to imagine, but what I've just described to you is, from what we read from the historians, how uh, they describe Corinth in the first century. In the first century, a place that's now uh, in Greece, in Corinth, in this city, what I've described to you is how this whole thing worked for them. And in that context, the Apostle Paul had planted churches, and he planted a church in Corinth, and people had become followers of Jesus, who up until that time, their lives were a bit of a mess. And they become Christians, and they were baptized, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and now they're in the church. But some of the stuff from their past is still with them in the present, and they're a little bit confused. You see, some of them, as part of their worship, used to go to the temple, uh, to Aphrodite, or, and they would go as part of their worship. The men would, would have sex with, uh, con- with prostitutes as part of it. It was part of their worship, but it, it was, it, there was no sacredness. It was just, uh, it, it's just all very, very messy. And those people become Christians. And then there's all sorts of issues in the church. There's, there's some people who are trying to figure out what does it mean to walk in the way of Christ? What does it mean? These are some of the first Christians, by the way, on the planet. They're trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus when it comes to a number of issues. And so they write to the Apostle Paul with some of these issues. And he writes back. And the letter to the, the first letter to the Corinthians that we call 1 Corinthians is the, the first of the letters we have recorded of him writing back to them and responding to some of the issues that they raised. I read one uh, commentary about this, and uh, somebody said, Life in a cesspool over time blocks out the odor until even filth smells like cologne. These people are surrounded and living in a cesspool, and they're wondering, what does it mean to be holy in that kind of context? Can you see why, because of what I've said so far, why it's relevant for us to open this word and to read it with open hearts and minds and saying, here, in 2022, in Watford, Lord, is there something that you would say to us? Now let's read from verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Or some translations say, for it is good for a man not to touch a woman or to be celibate. Okay, verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
I say this as a concession, not as a command. But I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind of another. And it won't come up on screen, but later on in verse 35, he says, as kind of bringing some of the things that he says later on that uh, David will deal with next week. He says, I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. This is the word of the Lord. And our hearts say, thanks be to God for revealing his practical wisdom to us. I hope many more of us, by the time we're finished and leaving through those doors, and by the time we've finished this stream, will be saying, thanks be to God for his word. Because he cares about these things. And in him there is hope and healing. Now, from the first century until now, there's been a few key changes. One of the biggest changes happened in the 18th century, Around the 1700s, the Industrial Revolution took place. Before that time, and, and there's a, a photograph, an Instagram feed from that time. Um, but before the Industrial Revolution, you see, uh, men and women got together in marriage for survival. So the reason to be married was actually to be able to maintain a family, yes, to continue a family line, but what brought them together is could they work together and survive together, whether it was in a homestead, a farm, or a small business, or some, making something to sell something. Uh, everything was on a family kind of context. And so the, a husband and wife would come together, and they would be soulmates, but workmates. In the 1700s, by the end of that 18th century, the Industrial Revolution changed that, and you end up with uh, men and women going to work going to factories. In fact, work shifted from being in the home or the locality in the village into big cities, and people would go to work. And, and then what happened, this is what social commentators tell us and historians, is that marriage changed in its makeup. So from this time on, the prominent reason it increasingly became to be married was for romance or love. The idea of marrying for love is a relatively new construct. The idea that you get together because of mutual attraction and romance as being the thing that keeps a marriage together is kind of a new invention, and it came with the Industrial Revolution. That kind of developed and grew over a period of time, and it was less and less about life kind of compatibility and more and more about romance. The idea of arranged marriages became less and less prominent and less and less an idea is more you married for love. By the time we get to the 1960s, something massive happens. We call it the sexual revolution. And this is when the contraceptive pill became mass-produced and available to people in the West. The availability of the contraceptive pill and the whole free love movement that came with it was this that you could now be sexually active without producing children. That became available to many, many people. And so this, this was like an accelerator of a trend that was already happening that meant that sex became something that was disconnected from the idea of marriage. And, and then everyone's having sex of all different types that they want to, with whoever they want to, with less and less consequence. And so it becomes... Uh, 
kind of messy cesspool of a situation, perhaps. But by the time we get to the end of the sexual revolution, what happened after that, we end up with this. And I'm going to draw you a picture. We end up with... um, We end up with this kind of idea. Is that the pinnacle of uh, human experience becomes this. It becomes sexual satisfaction. And don't worry, these um, high-technology... I better spell it right. Sat- if- Satisfaction. Right, let's try this again. Just um, on the- go and make a cup of tea if you're at home. Right. <laughs> so we've got a mountain here. And the pinnacle of this is sexual satisfaction. We began... <laughs> let's not talk. And right at the same time... And I'll swivel this around... This became the pinnacle of human experience because of the sexual revolution. Actually, to be, you couldn't be fully human and not be sexually satisfied. This became the aim of human life. And the more glorious it could be, even for a moment, the more human you were, the more fulfilled you were. And this is a lie that we were taught by the whole of our culture, many of our cultures, And even if you're from other nations and other continents, this is filtered through all the media. This is what we've been taught, that actually the pinnacle of human experience is a sexual experience or a continual state of sexual satisfaction. And then the children of this generation in the church, we did something is that we thought, well, if that's how it is, then we know we've read the Bible. We talked, we heard about Jesus. We've read the New Testament. Then actually, the, the Christian version of this is to put um, a wedding ring on it. That's a, that's a diamond, that's an engagement ring, but I mean wedding, I mean marriage. It is, we put a ring on it. And the true love waits kind of movement was, that, was saying that, yes, um, you can be sexually satisfied, but good Christians only can do that within the context of marriage. A man and woman together in a covenant of marriage. So a whole generation, this is my observation, they, they, they were raised, including myself, were raised to say a good Christian could still achieve the pinnacle of human experience as long as you're married. Anyone recognize that in your own story? So many, many people get married... Many good Christians get married because they want to have sex and they want to be sexually satisfied. So that's one, that's one kind of model and framework and this is probably the dominant idea. I, I dare to say that outside of the church in Corinth, this was quite a big deal. This is, this was the, the, the Romans were known for their orgies, okay? So this was something that they really aimed for. But I would suggest to you today that there is um, there's another hill that provides something different. And this is, we would call, uh, we could call it Zion or Jerusalem. Two things happened in Jerusalem that offer us a different way of seeing the world. The first of those, of course, is that Jesus came and he died on the cross. And on the cross, he removed the shame of all of humanity and he took the penalty on himself the cross of Jesus Christ. And then, um, really a matter of days later, after his resurrection, something else also happened. And we symbolize it here with a flame. The Holy Spirit came at Pentecost 
and was given to everyday people. And what happened here is a, was a gateway to an entirely different human experience of way and seeing the world. And what we have, what we've made available here, is something really, really awesome. And I believe it's what um, Paul is talking about. And that is selfless joy. Hope you can see that over there, even at the back. Selfless joy. The cross, the empty tomb, the sending of the Holy Spirit, make available to everyone selfless joy. So the question that we have is, so, so what, where, does, where does sex fit within this? Do you, do you need to be married to live this life? Does your marital status make any difference to this life? Not necessarily. In fact, this is the status that matters the most. You know all those forms you have to fill in? I know some of you hate those forms because every time, if you, if you were married and you're not anymore and you have to write in there, I'm divorced, it's, it's a pain in all of that nonsense and rubbish, isn't it? Society has defined us according to whether or not we, what our relationship status is. I'm telling you, this is the relationship status that matters. And that is, how do we relate to the God who on the cross makes it possible for us through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life of selfless joy. And so, so where does, where does uh, within, within this selfless joy then, well, where does sex fit in? And we'll come back to the passage, don't worry. Uh, I'll show you how. What, what, we've, what we just read a few moments ago reinforces this idea that I'm showing you. You see, within selfless joy, it, what, what if you, there's many people having sex outside of, away from the rock. And this is what Paul is saying. saying we are made as sexual beings. It's how God's made us. It's not, it's not bad. It's not dirty. It's good. It's holy. If we recognize that the place for us as followers of Christ is to, to do this in this kind of area. Let me get another pen. Um, in this area... In this area here, we can experience selfless joy and sex in the context of self-giving marriage. Self-giving marriage, or to use a more kind of theological term, covenant. That is what is here in this space. Can you see that over there? Self-giving marriage. And Helen pointed out a couple of weeks ago that Christian marriage is an act of self-donation, giving of self. It's not about getting sex. It's about giving of self, profoundly different. And Paul is describing these two things, and he's offering a choice. And in the first century, many people thought, well, how, how can you... Because uh, it felt so dirty, there was so much shame attached. How does this fit within the Christian experience? And before I go any further, I want to highlight one thing, that actually um, pursuing this is, not, is a lost cause because instead of actually being a mountain, what we actually have here is more like an iceberg. And the choice that we have to make, and the things about icebergs is that they're always melting and moving. If we have built our marriages, our sexuality, if we've built any aspect of ourselves 
on here to try and reach this. We're in dire straits because it's moving and melting. And there's so much pain when that is. You see, the choice that we have ultimately is between the iceberg and the rock. And where we build our lives, where we build our sexualities, where we build our marriages, is really a choice between those two things. Is this helping anyone? Or are people so surprised that I've said sex as many times as I have on a Sunday in church? It's all right. The choice is between the iceberg and the rock. Now let's go back to the text. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. The Apostle Paul, single man, not had sex, not having sex, is saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good. Why? Because selfless joy is not dependent upon sexual activity. Hallelujah. Jesus himself never had sex. Fully human, the perfect human. The ultimate example of what it means to be human. Because he experienced, filled with the Holy Spirit, the selfless joy that he then makes available to all of us. Hallelujah. Never had sex. Verse 2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, or the Greek is porneas, so uh, we know uh, what comes from this idea of the kind of uh, perversion of sexual things. Because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife... And each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's... Hang on, let's just pause a moment. This is the first century. The, the, the reason for sex is for a man to get pleasure from his wife, okay, in the first century. Listen to Paul, verse 3. The, the first task, if you like, in the bedroom is to the husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs, or the conjugal rights in some more traditional language. The wife, listen to this. He's talking about authority in the home. Authority. This is the strongest language in the New Testament about authority in the home. And it's not about who decides where you live or who does the dishes. Right? Listen to this. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband, hang on, gives authority over his body to his wife? This is radical. Paul, you are talking about a new society. You're talking about something different. A husband gives his wife rights over his body. What kind of teaching is this, Paul? It's Christian teaching. That's what it is. Because Paul's vision is for a new society where men and women are equal. And neither is objectified, but both have dignity. Verse 5, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Let me pause there. The reason they say that is because some of them were rathering to have pray than rather to, you know, let's, we're fasting and praying. It's like, not tonight, darling, I'm praying. It's kind of a get out because they didn't know where sex fit within their Christian theology, within their way of doing life. And he says, um, no, actually, if you do it, then he said afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as 
a command. You see, they had baggage spiritually and sexually. And he's saying, look, now the concession, if you're going to have sex, if, you, if, if you've opened the Pandora's box, and many of us have done that in our lives and have experience and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Once you open the Pandora's box, he's saying, look, if you are going to be sexually active, there is a place for this. And it's in the marriage bed where both are equal, where both are giving and neither are taking. Then verse 7, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. This is a great teaching. This is a great teaching. This is good for you. I'm looking at some of your faces. I'm trying to tell. Now, are you just hoping that I finish this quickly and go and watch the football, or do we dig a bit deeper? I think we dig a bit deeper. There's a profound link between our spirituality and our sexuality, very closely related. And that's why, when it comes to the end of chapter 6 that Helen was talking about a couple of weeks ago, that actually it really does matter because when our bodies are involved, our bodies are sacred, a place where the Holy Spirit is meant to dwell to give us selfless joy. But Paul says in verse 7, but I wish everyone was single as I am because he's full of the joy of the Lord and he doesn't need a partner to make him complete. Someone needs to hear that today. You don't need a partner to make you complete. This is a message for the whole church. This is good for everyone who's listening to this. Everyone at home, this is a message for you. Firstly, if your experience of life isn't selfless joy, if if it's a long way from this, if you haven't experienced this, I want to say to you that you can look wherever you want on whatever kind of practice, you can do whatever you want with your body. You can, you can go in any country, on any website, and you can go looking for whatever you want. But I can just tell you that from all of human experience over thousands of years is that only in God is there found the kind of freedom and joy that you were created to enjoy. You don't need to be married for that. But if you're married, you can stay married and have that you can experience selfless joy. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Receive the shame cleansing of what happened on the cross and then receive the Holy Spirit. Open yourself to receive the joy of the Lord. And in a little bit, we're going to sing to the Holy Spirit. We're going to invite him to come and fill us with his joy. Uh, That status matters more than whether you're married or not, divorced or not, whatever's happened in your life. Secondly, If your gift at this point isn't married, it could be for a number of reasons. It could be because you're demarried. You've been married before or unmarried for some other reason, maybe widowed or a widower. You might be post-married in some other way in in the midst of a separation or a divorce. It could be that you're pre-married and actually one day you would love to be married And for some, it could be one day soon, please, Lord, because I've been waiting for a long time. I want to say something, hopefully, that will give you both hope and healing. By being unmarried, you are in good company with Jesus and Paul. That's a good start, right? You're in good company. And only Jesus can validate you. 
And the community of the church can provide a context for that validation and fulfillment. But I'd also say, don't deny your sexual desires, but bring them to God honestly. And as we've already heard Paul say, don't, he doesn't want anyone to burn with lust. That's not, God doesn't want any, lead us not into temptation, Lord. So if your desire is to be married, hold that desire before the Lord. And I'd encourage you not to give up on that, but hold it before the Lord. But realize that God's design is for self-giving in a covenant of marriage and not self-gratification on your own terms. So when and if you are married, then don't build the marriage over here, but only build a marriage if you think it can stay over here. Amen? Because the choice that we have to make here is between selfless joy and actually selfish sex. Selfish sex is on the iceberg and selfless joy is on the rock. If you're here today and the gift that you have is marriage, and it might not always feel like a gift. I'm not looking anywhere specifically. But if the gift you have that God's given you by his own choice is marriage and you've made that commitment, then can I remind you, and I remind myself, of the marriage vows you probably said. With my body, I honour you. All that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Within the love of God, a covenant is made to give ourselves, husband and wife, to each other. So it seems to me that having done that, that my body is now not my own. I've given up the rights. And in this self-giving and, and mutual kind of owning, then there are two things that could be selfish. Firstly, demanding sex is selfish. Demanding sex is selfish. And in fact, is a conviction for anyone. You, you don't demand something that's meant to be an act of giving, yes? And if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get some help. I'd encourage you, don't stay in a relationship which is consistently abusive. Get some help. Get some prayer. Ask for help. Come and talk to whatever you, whoever you trust. Um, then it's important that you don't stay in a situation where in a forceful way sex is demanded. That is selfish. And it's not God's desire. But in the same way, withholding sex is also selfish. Because a body has been given to the other. You've given yourself. So withholding sex is also, if you like, almost equally selfish. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying to the husband and wife, look, it's important. Don't stop. It's like he's saying, make love, not prayer. Don't use prayer as a reason not to come together because you are given to each other. And in that act of union, and, and there's more about this in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, in, in that act of union, you are experiencing something that's like Jesus' relationship to the church. I mean, this is holy, right? So withholding from sex is selfish, but demanding sex is also selfish. Maybe there's an opportunity to invite the Holy Spirit of selfless joy into every room of the house if you know what I mean, to invite the Holy Spirit to come and cleanse and renew and to bring joy, to pursue against selfless, joyful union. 
I guess the final thing I'd want to say is that either way, whether married or single, the goal is to be filled with the Holy Spirit of joy so the marital status doesn't make all the difference. I know of somebody recently who recognised after many years of marriage that it wasn't real maturity simply to want their wife, to need their wife, but actually to want their marriage, to want the marriage. See, wanting, me wanting you is different to me wanting us. In self-giving, in mutuality, there is great joy and there's also great security and safety under the, in, within the love of God. Something secure as God's designed it. Paul says, in verse 35, I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. I hope this has helped you. I know this is an uncomfortable subject, even as I'm talking about it. I think I haven't really preached about this many times. Part of me is thinking, why not? Paul doesn't shy away from this. A fulfilled single man gives some really good marital advice. Inspired by the Holy Spirit sharing the heart of God. I wonder if the band could come up. And I want to give an encouragement to you that the heart of God for each and every one of us is for fulfillment in Christ. The fullness of the Holy Spirit, the heart of God for us, is both hope and healing. So I'm going to say a simple prayer, and then Shania and the band are going to lead us in a song that might be new to some of us. But I'd encourage you to... Allow the song to become your own prayer, and then Helen's going to lead us in prayer. But before I go any further, let me just say, it it might be off the back of today, it's like, what do I do, Tim? What do I do? It's important to talk to somebody. I'd really encourage you, find someone you trust and talk about this. Now, if you are married, it's good to talk about these things. I spoke to somebody after the first service who said, how do I begin the conversation with my spouse about this? I said, well, you could say, what do you reckon about what Tim said? That's a good start. Okay, I'll try that. And that's not a conversation for the bedroom. It's better probably maybe to go for a walk or have a meal together. But I'd encourage you, talk about this. Allow the Holy Spirit to enrich your marriage if you're married. And if you're single, you'd love to talk to somebody. There is somebody that you know, that you trust, that understands you. And if you actually don't have anyone you do, then get in touch with David and our pastoral leadership team. We'll be really glad to help you. Let's pray. Let's put our Bibles down, our phones at home. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to have his way. Lord, Thank you for your word. So relevant, so timely, so helpful. And God, I want to pray that your wisdom and your life would abound in this church family. I want to pray you bless every marriage, bless every person, every single person for whatever reason, whatever stage of life. Just say, bless each and every one and fill this place with your Holy Spirit's joy. In Jesus' name.